Well, Living Hope, we were not supposed to do this anymore, uh, but Mother Nature had different plans for us, and we were joking today how odd it is to be back in this space and to not have people here. And feels very much like March 2020, and i uh, going to be totally honest with you, I hate it. But uh, thankful for technology, thankful that we can uh, worship together online, and really looking forward to joining back together physically in person next week. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you there at home, if you'll turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 17 is where we're going to start today. And we're actually going to be jumping around to several different chapters in the book of Proverbs. We'll go ahead and open up there, uh, turn on your device, whatever that looks like for you, wherever you are. And we're going to read two verses today, starting in Proverbs chapter 17. We're going to read verse 17 and then jump over to chapter 18. So uh, if you're at your living room, if you want to stand with me, you can remain seated and sip your cup of coffee. Jesus knows, though, and he will tell me. But uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, God's word says this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. Turn over one chapter, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, and God's word says this. One with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for technology. God, even in a situation that has kept us from gathering physically, Lord, we know that we're still gathered together. And so, Jesus, I pray as we take a journey through the book of Proverbs today that your spirit would speak very clearly to us right where we are. Father, would you open up our ears to hear directly from you today the things that you need to speak to us personally. God, would you give us soft hearts to receive that, Lord? May we not be hardened to your truth, Lord, but may we receive that eagerly today. And Jesus, may you give us the hands and the feet that we need to live these things out as we walk closely with Jesus the rest of this week. We're so thankful for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, you all know that I love a good story. I'm never short of good stories. And what I love is a good story that's even more relatable. And one that I was thinking of this week was there was a married couple, newly married couple, who really got in one of their very first fights. And at the end of this fight, not knowing how to resolve this conflict, they decided that they were going to give each other the silent treatment. You've been there before, I'm sure. Well, after about two days of this mute argument, them giving each other the silent treatment, the husband, the man, realized that he needed his wife's help. You see, the next day he had to leave early in the morning for a business trip to Chicago, and he had to be up by 5 a.m. to get ready to leave on this trip. The problem was they'd learned over the past couple of years that the man was not a morning person, but his wife was. And it really wasn't uncommon for her to kind of nudge him awake in the morning when his alarm would go off. But him being a stubborn man, a stubborn husband, not wanting to break the silence of their mute argument, the silent treatment, what he did instead, knowing he had to awake early, knowing he would need her help to ensure he was awake, he simply got a notepad and a piece of paper and wrote these words on it. He said, please wake me at 5 a.m. I have to leave for a business trip. He took that piece of paper and set it on the nightstand next to his wife's side of the bed. Next morning came, night had passed, the man woke up, and he discovered that his wife was not there in the bed next to him. She was already awake. He rolled over and looked at the alarm clock, and it was now 9 o'clock, and he knew he'd missed his flight, he was going to be late for his trip, and he didn't know what he was going to do. 
So he was frustrated, obviously, upset over the situation. He began to roll out of bed. He was going to find his wife, demand an answer. Why didn't she see that note and wake him up at 5 a.m.? But as his feet rolled over on the side of that bed, he saw on his nightstand a little piece of paper that read these words. It's 5 a.m. You better wake up. You see, in some capacity, whether it be in our marriages, our friendship, our parenting, any other relationship that we have, you and I in some way have been involved in conflict. Conflict is a natural part of human relationships. Sometimes it's, it's petty conflict. Sometimes it's serious conflict, but we've all been there. And with February knocking on our door tomorrow, we're entering in the relationship month of the year where everybody in some way, relationships will be on your mind. If, if you're married, if you're dating somebody, Valentine's Day month starts tomorrow. Men, you're welcome. This is your reminder. You got 14 more days to figure it out. If you're single during the month of February, it's likely called Singles Awareness Month for you. But all of us in some way, the next 30 days or so, are going to be thinking about relationships. And so we decided over the month of February, since that's naturally going to be on the mind with the the flows of culture, why not look at relationships from a biblical perspective? And specifically, let's look at how to handle conflict within our relationships. Let's look at how to handle conflict and really what are, I believe, the three relational spheres most of us walk. Uh, The relational sphere of our, our friendships, our children, and our spouse. And we're going to look at each of those spheres over the next few weeks and and learn how do we deal with conflict in each of those varying relationships. And here's a big idea, and if you're a note taker, I would write this down. This is kind kind of serve as the foundation and the premise for everything that we talk about the next few weeks. And here it is, that every relational conflict that you have and that I have has one common thing, me. Now, if you were to say that to yourself, every relational conflict that you have has one common thing among every conflict that you have. It's you. And that's going to kind of serve as our foundation, whether it be with our our, our friends, relationships with them, our spouse, our children. Every relationship has one common thing. It's me. And if I learn to deal with me as as much as it's up to me, then I believe that much of the conflict I experience in my relationships can be avoided. So we're not going to give you 10 steps to avoid conflict in your relationships. Instead, I want to look at what the scriptures say on how we need to conduct ourselves in relationships and let that spill over then to those other interactions that we have with our spouse, our friends, and our children. And to do this, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs, which we just read a second ago. Now, we haven't spent much time in the book of Proverbs as a church up to this point. We've referenced it, but we've never really studied it. So I want to take just a few moments here and let's set the stage for the book of Proverbs, because this is a unique book compared to what we've studied in the past. The Proverbs are what's known as the wisdom literature in the Bible. If you remember back in the summertime in one of our series, we looked at how we got the Bible and how it was composed, and we talked about there's different genres of literature in the Scriptures. And so there's, there's genres such as uh, historical, so like the book of Genesis, First and Second Kings, it's talking about history. There's things like the law, like Exodus and Leviticus, where God lays out the standard of what to do and not to do very clearly. There's prophetic books in the Bible like Isaiah and Revelation, which are very predictive of future events that are going to happen. There's narrative like the Gospels, where you read about the life of Jesus, very narrative in fashion. Then there's letters like we just finished the letter to the Philippians, where one individual writes a letter to a church. 
But the book of Proverbs doesn't fit in any of those categories because it's known as what is called the wisdom literature. It's categorized with books such as Proverbs, the book of Psalms, the book of Song of Solomon, and the book of Ecclesiastes. And what makes Proverbs unique, even among the wisdom literature, is if you were to read through this book, you're going to find that there's really not a thematic arch in Proverbs. It's not like an overarching story that occurs. There's really not a plot in Proverbs, which makes it kind of interesting. And there's really not a main character that you can kind of follow through on a journey as you're reading the book. If Proverbs has any main character, it's simply wisdom. How do you have wisdom? What does wisdom look like? How do you walk in wisdom? And so let me give you a little definition that can kind of sum all that up and help us understand what Proverbs is. Proverbs is a collection of short, thought-provoking statements meant to give you insight into daily, practical, godly living. Now, this book of the Bible was written by a man you might be familiar with, King Solomon. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles, he had an encounter with God where he was given the insight to being the wisest man on earth. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 4 that over the span of his life, through this wisdom gift that God had given him, that Solomon had, had, had written down 3,000 different individual Proverbs. But in our Bible, in the book that we have, the book of Proverbs, we're only given 513 of those. And so as we study this book the next three weeks, simply view it through, the, through that lens, that it is just practical advice for godly living. Uh, think of it almost like maybe a father or a mother just giving life lessons to their children. So today, let's focus in on, let's kind of zone in on this idea of friendships and relationships with our friends. We all have friends in some way, shape, or form, some closer than others, but we've all experienced or are experiencing friendship. And we all know this. When you get two people together in any sort of a relationship, what happens? Tension is likely to occur. Fights happen. Conflict is part of it. But the common denominator in every conflict is what? It's me. It's you. Every single time. So if I can develop character qualities in me biblically on how I need to conduct myself in my friendships, then I can avoid some of the conflicts that I may have with other people. So today in Proverbs, starting in chapter 17, let's look at four, we'll call them character qualities, we could call them habits, you could call them virtues, whatever you want, that if we live these out in our friendships, these are going to help us thrive in those relationships. Now, and you're going to notice something. This book is so different than the other books that we've looked at. We don't typically preach messages kind of in this vein. So I hope this is helpful for you today. So biblically, let's look at what a godly friend is according to the Proverbs. Point number one, if you like to take notes there at home. A godly friend is selfless. Proverbs 17, 17. A godly friend is selfless. Look at that verse with me one more time. What does Solomon say? That a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. When we talk of selflessness, this seems so simple. And we talked about this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Philippians a few months back. But I believe that the scriptures teach us here that this is one of the most basic pillars of friendship, yet one that you and I struggle with the most. Because what Solomon shows us here in verse 17 is there's essentially uh, basically two levels in which a friendship can function. You have the base level of friendship with somebody simply a friend. He says in the first part of verse 17, a friend that loves at all times. But then the second half of the verse, he transitions. He says base level is just being a friend. But then there's a deeper level of friendship where somebody goes from a friend to a brother. 
We all have those friends that are with us at all times, and hopefully we are that to other people. They're there with us when we're prosperous, they're close to us. When difficult times arise, when adversity comes into my life, those people remain close. That's a basic element of friendship that Solomon shows us. But then he goes that little bit deeper level with us, and he says, no, no, no. There's, you got to have people in your life that go to a deeper level of selflessness with you that forge a deeper level of selflessness with you, where they're not just your friend, but they become your brother. They become your sister. Where it's not just base level friendship anymore, but they become so close and so intertwined with you through the tough circumstances of life that they almost become like a relative, not by blood or by name, but a relative by circumstance. A brother's born for a difficult time. It's those moments, and we've all experienced this, probably this last year you have, where your life is falling apart. And that person that has always been your friend seems to step in and at the right moment. It's like they were born for that moment to walk with you when adversity is striking. Where they have the right words to say to you. Their presence keeps you steady in the difficult times. And friends, here's what's so important here. Now, we not only need friends like this, I believe Solomon shows us, but we need to make sure that we are friends like this. That we're the kind of people in our friendships that put the needs of others above our own all the time. Where we're less concerned about our self-preservation. That is such a cultural thing right now that you have to be so concerned about yourself, but the gospel points us to the preservation of other people. A friend that becomes a brother, stepping into our adversity, walking with us, and walking ahead of us, completely selfless for our benefit, not for the benefit of themselves. Ask yourself a simple question today. This is simple. Am I a selfless friend? Am I a selfless friend to other people? Am I that kind of friend to other people? And here's the tendency, and I was doing this all week studying the Proverbs, as we read things like this where Solomon says we need selfless friends and we start to think of our, our relationships and our friendships and we're like, well, that person isn't that for me and they're not that for me and they're not selfless for me. Can I encourage us to do what, what James says and stop taking the mirror of the scripture and holding it up against other people? Turn the mirror around on yourself and ask yourself, am I this kind of friend to the people that need me? Turn the mirror around. Proverbs 17, 17 reminded me of a biblical character. Maybe you've never heard of him before in the New Testament named Aristarchus. Aristarchus, and we could do this journey with similar Bible characters that walked with Paul, but Aristarchus is unique. Acts chapter 19 says that an uproar occurred in Ephesus over idol worship. And you can read in Acts chapter 19 where Aristarchus and another gentleman named Gaius were then brought before an amphitheater of people who were so upset there in Ephesus because they were preaching the gospel alongside of Paul. And Acts chapter 19, verse 20 says that Aristarchus and Gaius and these other disciples, rather than giving up Paul to the crowds, instead they made sure that Paul stayed away from this harmful situation. Fast forward one chapter to Acts chapter 20, you see that after that event, that Aristarchus then accompanied Paul to Macedonia. Fast forward to Acts chapter 27, you then see that Aristarchus is now in prison with Paul in Rome. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, that was a letter written by Paul from Roman imprisonment. Here's what he says about Aristarchus. Colossians 4.10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings. 
As Paul is in a prison cell in Rome, Aristarchus is right there with him in that difficult time. In Philemon 23 and 24, again, a letter written from Roman imprisonment by Paul. He mentions Aristarchus again. Look at this, Philemon 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, he sends you greetings, and so do Mark and who? Aristarchus. Every time he's mentioned, what's the context? Proverbs 17, 17. A brother that's born for a difficult time. Walking with Paul in the difficult days, laying aside his selfish desires for the sake of his friend. Ultimately, who was Aristarchus? A tangible expression of and of the gospel to Paul through his friendship. So the first question we have to ask ourselves today is this, am I a selfless friend? Point number two, if you're a note taker, says a godly friend is faithful. A godly friend is faithful. Look at verse, uh, Proverbs 18, 24. One with many friends may be harmed, but there's a friend who stays closer than a brother. Now, I know not everybody listening today on YouTube or maybe you're listening on the radio next week, not everybody's on Facebook, and I totally understand that, but I think you're going to understand this illustration here. I jumped up on my Facebook this past Thursday because I was curious, how many friends do I have on Facebook? And I, when I say the term friends, I'm going to put quote marks around that, and I use the term friend on Facebook so loosely, okay? So I don't count these all as real friends. I understand that, but you're all going to get this illustration. So how many friends does Aaron Taylor have on Facebook? You ready to be like super impressed? Here we go. 2,099. Isn't that impressive? No, it's not impressive. Why is it not impressive? Because it's not real. It's not reality. Did you know that you and I do not, in any way, shape, or form, have the emotional, mental, or physical capacity to have that many friends? 2,099 friends. We don't have the ability to have that many friends. And check this out. Proverbs 18.24, Solomon warns us of that. Look at the first part of that verse again. Solomon says, the one with many friends... Your Bible translation, some of them say this, the one with too many friends. I like that. What happens to them? They spread too thin. They can't please everybody. And what's the result? Solomon says it results in harm. The one with too many friends results in brokenness. It's a picture of a person who has spread themselves so thin in friendship that they're trying to please everybody. They can't say no to anybody. And it's like trying to spin all of these plates at one time. You've probably seen somebody doing this before. You're spinning so many plates that you can't keep them all up. And what ultimately happens? You drop them all. You see, Solomon warns us here that we were not created to sustain or maintain that many friendships. You can't do it. I'm convinced so much of our relational conflict and our friendships finds its home here. That we spread ourselves so thin in friendship that we can't invest deeply in a small group of people. I read a study this week that was kind of eye-opening for me. It said the average person only has the psychological or the mental capacity for 150 casual friends. And by casual friends, that basically means you know somebody's name, you might know the name of their spouse, and you have an idea of what they do for a living, but don't know where they do it. That's just a casual friend. We can have 150 casual friends. We have the mental and psychological capacity for about 15 close relationships. People that you probably interact with on a weekly basis, maybe you hang out with once a month kind of a thing. 15 close relationships. But do you know how many intimate bonds that you actually have the mental capacity to maintain? Five. 
You and I are hardwired by God for close, loyal friendship. It's like God had this whole thing rigged and he told us here in the scriptures. Five. We were hardwired for that. But in the day and age of social media and information and we're surrounded by all of this stuff all the time, we have to have so many friends online and all this crazy stuff, we're consumed with this idea of these large swaths of friendship. Solomon warns us. He says that's only going to lead to harm, heartache, and brokenness. Because you weren't meant to do that. Look at the second part of this verse. One with many friends may be harmed. One with too many friends may be harmed. But there is a friend that stays closer than a brother. Rather than spread thin, Solomon points us to a different type of friendship, close and a loyal friend. This type of friendship is intimate and close. It's interesting. That phrase, stay closer there in verse 24, is the same Hebrew phrase that's used in Genesis 2.24 when Moses is describing marriage. Look at Genesis 2.24 with me in the scripture. Moses writes these words. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with, or the phrase is, or stays close with his wife, and they become one flesh. You see, the marriage relationship, that relationship of a husband and wife, is what? It's two separate individuals who make the conscious decision to be bonded together into one. We know that marriage, when it's done biblically, is a man and a woman who are meshed together into one for better or for worse. That's part of the marriage vow. And God wired us and created us to have those same kinds of friendships. Friendships that can be counted on. Friends that are steadfast through adversity. Friends who are for you and with you no matter the cost, better or worse. Proverbs 8.24 reminded me of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. You can read in 1st 2nd Samuel how Jonathan was this type of friend to David. Standing by David in the good and the bad. Calling David to repentance when he needed to. Defending David before Saul. You see, we see biblically that Jonathan was a physically close friend, but also a spiritually close brother to David. Jonathan chose to intentionally invest deeply into David's life, being close, caring deeply, and faithfully walking with his friend. So our second question, are you that kind of friend to other people? Are you a faithful friend? Remember, the question today is not, do, not who do I have in my circle that can be this for me? Rather, who can I be this for in my circle of friends? Who do I need to be faithful to? Number three, a godly friend is genuine. Genuine. Proverbs 19, verse 4, if you want to fast forward one chapter in your Bible. Proverbs 19, verse 4 says this, that wealth attracts many friends, but a poor person is separated from his friend. You see, in the book of Proverbs, if you were to read through this entire book, which we're going to encourage you to do at the end of our service, uh, friendship is mentioned on nine different occasions. We're focusing in on, on four specific ones today. But of those nine occasions, Solomon really says that there's two kinds of friendship. So we talked about levels of friendship. There's a friend and then there's a brother that goes deeper. Now he points us to two different kinds of friendship. Solomon says, well, first, there's the kind of friends that exist because you have something to offer them. Let's go ahead and be honest here. That's not a real friend. That's somebody that's using you. Then he says in the second part of this verse that there's friendships that exist out of genuine love and care for another person. He says, that's the kind of friend you and I should desire to be. But he gives us a glance at both. Look again at the first part. Wealth attracts many friends. 
This is such a simple principle here, but this is so important in the scriptures. If you listen to our daily podcast, you probably heard me mention this this week. But last week, the lottery hit an all-time high. Did you all see this? It hit an all-time high where the lottery, if you got the right ticket, I don't know how the lottery works, so if I sound ignorant, it's because I am. But in the lottery, they said that you could win $1 billion if you got the right ticket. Can you imagine? $1 billion if you got the right ticket. And somebody at a supermarket in Michigan had the right ticket. I can't imagine. Now, I read that this week, and then I, I talked to a couple of folks, and they said, yeah, 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 but the person that won the billion dollars, they don't get to keep all of it. Like, they have to pay taxes. So I was just curious. I looked it up. The person in Michigan at the supermarket that won the billion-dollar lottery, still the cash take-home prize was $740 million. I'm going to go ahead and say something. Um, if you're upset that you got $740 million over $1 billion, you need to calm down, eat a Snickers because you're being a diva, okay? That's a lot of money. But here's what's amazing to me. I was thinking about this, this these past few days. I'd be willing to bet that if the person that won that lottery actually told people, like, hey, man, I just brought home $740 million, that astronomically the number of people that want to be their friends is going to increase. Why? Because of what they have to offer now. And Solomon warns that here. He says, wealth attracts many friends. People want to be your friend when you have something to offer them. When it benefits them, your friendship is valuable. But Solomon says the test of true friendship, Proverbs 18, 24, is seen when you have nothing to offer. Because what's the inverse of the wealthy man? The second part of the verse is the poor man. It's the man who was wealthy and then lost everything. Now he has nothing. So what's the principle for us to take here from Proverbs 19, verse 4? Don't be a friend because of what you get out of the relationship. Be a friend because of what you can give to the relationship. Guys, we got to stop expecting people to invest so much into us and instead invest in love into other people. Stop expecting something in return because you're somebody's friend. Just love and care for folks. That's true friendship. When they got nothing to offer you, will you actually love them? It's in those moments that the genuineness of our friendship is put on display. When I read that this week, I kept thinking of New Testament examples of these Old Testament truths, and the Bible always complements itself. I was thinking of the Apostle Paul and Timothy at the end of the Apostle Paul's life. I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul and Luke. If you read in the book of 2 Timothy, that was the very last letter that Paul had written. And he wrote that letter to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. This was his final word of encouragement. Paul's in a Roman prison cell somewhere between A.D. 64 and 67, somewhere around there. He's about to go put, be put on trial by Nero. Ultimately, we know historically that Paul was going to be beheaded and falsely accused of stuff that he didn't do. Nero had completely lost his mind. Part of Rome had been burnt down. Nero was blaming all the Christians, and so Paul had just been caught up in this wave of Nero's destruction. And as he pens this letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 specifically, as his life is about to end, he makes this incredible phrase in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Paul's knocking on death's door in a Roman prison cell. Life's basically falling apart for, for, no, for no other words there. And look at what he says, 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Only Luke is with me. He's at the end. Paul's got nothing else to offer. He, he's got a target on his back from the highest leader in the land. 
He's knocking on death's door. Not too long from now, his head was going to be chopped off. Nothing else to offer. But Luke remained with him. In the midst of probably one of the toughest circumstances that he had ever endured, Luke remained. That's powerful. Friends, be Luke. We need to be Luke to our friends, standing with them, not because of what they can offer us in the moment, but rather because we genuinely love our friends. Ask yourself today, am I a genuine friend? Number four, and we're almost done. Number four says, a godly friend is honest. Is honest. Proverbs 27, verse 6, if you want to turn there. It says, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. I saved this one for last, this talk of honesty, because I believe it's the toughest one that we all struggle to live. Because when it comes to honesty, here's a truth for us. We love to give it and hate to receive it. We love to be honest with other people, but we hate to receive honesty from them. Can I get a witness in there in your house? Go ahead and stand up and say amen. What have you got to do? I hear this phrase all the time. Well, I just tell people like it is. Chill out and stop it. Okay? We say that all the time. I just tell people like it is. But the moment somebody confronts us on our stuff, what do we do? We get up in arms. How dare they do that to me? But biblically, Solomon reminds us that true friends are honest friends. Notice Solomon didn't say true friends are jerks. Man, that's a truth for us today. There's a difference between being an honest friend and a friend that's a flat-out jerk. We need less jerks and more honesty in the church these days. Let's explain what he's talking about here. Look at the second part of the proverb. He says in Proverbs 27, 6, the kisses of an enemy, they're excessive. Uh, paint the picture there for us. That's this picture of somebody in your life who's just flattering you. They're telling you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. There's an incredible Hebrew word here that we need to, to, to really hone in on. It's called a suck-up, all right? That's what's going on here. Solomon says you got to watch out for suck-ups. They're friends that are just telling you what you want to hear, and they're not being honest. They're not friends at all. Instead, people that are like that are called deceitful enemies. Because if you love somebody... You're going to be truthful with them. Here's an example for you. The past several weeks, Pastor Joe and myself have been working with uh, two of our pastoral interns on some messages that they're hopefully going to preach in this coming year. Now, it's really just kind of a fun experience because we give them the opportunity on this platform to take about 10, 15, 20 minutes and just practice their message. And then when they're done, we all sit down in, in the front area of the office and we just talk through this. And here's what we always do with them. First off, we encourage them hey, here's what you did really well. This was awesome, man. This was a great point. That illustration hit home. Love how you explained that passage of the Bible. This was great. But then, after that, we always lovingly correct them. Why do we do that? Why are we honest with them? Because we tell them this, that you get one shot to preach your first message in front of a church. One shot. And if you bomb it, it's going to be hard to earn back that opportunity. But if you knock it out of the park, people are going to respect you more and want to listen to what you have to say. And you know, Joe and I could just take these interns and we could just say, all right, this Sunday you're up. No preparation, no coaching. We don't do anything for them. We just throw them up on the platform and leave them to fend for themselves. You know, that's not us being a friend. That's not us loving them. Instead, we correct them because we love them. 
Folks, if somebody's doing something that will harm them, bring harm to their character, bring harm to their integrity, or cause them heartache in life, we have to honestly correct our friends. That's how we prove that we love them. That's true friendship. Let's take it a little bit deeper. If you have a friend that's walking in sin, you can't leave them there. That's not love. Sin can't be ignored. It has to be confronted, honestly correcting people. That's true friendship. That's how we love people well. Honesty in our friendship is an expression of our love for other people. So let's close with this thought. I was writing down these things this week, and I honestly thought to myself, again, Proverbs is so different than some of the other passages of Scripture that we've studied the last few years. And I thought to myself, is this too simple? Because it really is. Yet as I was writing in my journal and just journaling thoughts and thinking through some of the concepts presented here, um, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, and I had to be honest with myself, how much tension in my friendships could I avoid if I actually lived out the truths in Proverbs that we discussed this week? If I'm actually honest with myself, myself right now, and I look back through selflessness and faithfulness and honesty and all these principles we looked at, and I actually like look in the mirror of the Scripture, I'm going to realize that there's so many of these things that I do not live out well in my friendships throughout the week. And so while these truths may be simple, they are, friends, we need to beg the Spirit of God to do a work in our hearts so we could live these out truly among our friendships. Because I struggle, and I know you do too, to live these out day by day. And here's why this is so important. I believe being this kind of friend to our friends is a clear, tangible expression of the gospel to them. Being selfless and faithful and genuine and honest is living the gospel in the midst of our friendships. Because Jesus modeled these things for us. In one verse, let me show you, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Let me show you this. Look at this, Romans 5, 8. But God proves his own love. Right there, pause. Jesus modeling for you and I what it looks like to care deeply for somebody else. God proving his love. For who? For us. God proving his love for us. You see, God's love for humanity was broad yet specific. Jesus loved the world generally, yet loves you and he loves me specifically. That's Jesus being faithful to us in our relationship. So God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners. There's the genuineness of his friendship with you and I. Jesus did not love us because of what we are or what we had to offer him, thank goodness, Instead, Jesus loved us in spite of those things. And while we were what? Still sinners. There's honesty that Jesus expresses to us. Love would let Jesus keep us the way that we were. We are sinners. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't lie about it. He just tells us flat out, you're a sinner and you need a savior and I'm him. Now watch this, that while we were still sinners, what happened? Jesus died for you and me. Willingly, voluntarily, and graciously, Jesus gave up his life for you and for me. What was that? The ultimate act of selflessness. Do you see how Jesus is the perfect example of these things? Of selflessness, faithfulness, genuineness, and honesty expressed in a relationship. So here's my encouragement for you as I pray for us. Let's live these things out in our friendships this week. Living the gospel, showing Jesus to our friends, and investing deeply, caring intentionally, and loving in our friendships well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, again, we are so grateful for technology. Even though we're separated, we can still be together. God, I pray that your word has spoken deeply to our hearts today. 
God, that you would draw us to repentance and as we repent that the Spirit of God would do a work in our hearts bringing us closer to Jesus and living out the gospel more fully the rest of this week. God, may we invest intentionally in our friendships this week and live out the truths that we've seen in the Scriptures. God, we're so thankful for your word. Thank you for allowing us to study it together today. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. Amen.